Well, this was a fascinating episode with Kevin Horn, the CEO of Farmers and Merchants Bank of Ashland. It all starts in South America, just a little bit different of a Mayberry that Kevin experienced growing up as he lived in places like Venezuela and Costa Rica. And this episode beyond of where he grew up is so interesting for this perspective as well. The leadership lessons that he will share with you today that he's learned. He studied some of the great leaders, Maxwell, Lencioni, and of course he has his own leadership experiences that he will talk about in this episode. For instance, how often do you hear how important it is to endure pain, the willingness to endure pain, and why that's important as a leader, and why he doesn't recommend being a my way or a or the highway kind of leader, because as he says, if your employees can't think, then why are they there? Why are they working for you? You're going to get a ton out of this episode with Kevin Horn, brought to you by, of course, the great producer, Grace Dunbar, on this episode of Leadership Lessons from Mayberry. Well, this Mayberry is going to be interesting when we talk with Kevin Horn of Farmers and Merchants Bank of Ashland, because you don't have the typical Mayberry that we always start with here in the last 15 shows. Uh, we're going to start there, Kevin. I can't wait to hear this. Tell me a little bit about your Mayberry growing up. Yeah, so it is a little different than most, probably. I I have in that space um, in the 60s and 70s, um, I lived overseas. And so my life really began in Costa Rica in San Jose um, when I was six and um, lived there in San Jose. And my parents at that particular time were learning Spanish. And uh, so we lived there for a year. And then we moved to Venezuela, where I spent most of my growing up years. And this is Amazon jungle, as you said to me, right? You're right around the Amazon. Yeah, so we lived in the Estado Apure, which is kind of central southern Venezuela, and off uh, a river called the Orinoco. And um, it's, uh, my parents worked with an Indian tribe called the Puma Indians. Um, they, they were the Yarudos. And so, you know, the Amazon looks different depending on where you live. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we weren't actually living on the Amazon, you know, we were off the Orinoco, which is kind of a main tributary coming out. Um, and it's, it's really, um, that area is what I would call savanna. It's kind of like plains and it has lots of rivers and cattle ranching. Mm -hmm. And, um, this particular river that we lived off of, it was right in front of our house in the dry season, it would totally dry up. The river. The river itself would Mm -hmm. would totally dry up. And and then in the winter, when the rains would come, it would immediately fill. Like, you could hear it coming. And it would just fill. And and so this was not like a small river. This was a huge river. And it would immediately fill. And, of course, you know, so I grew up, you know, with dugout canoes and, and... catching piranha and oh, watching man. for alligators and 
you know, visiting the Indians and their thatched roofs and their bow and arrows and their, you know, I still have a set at home of bow and arrows that, that they used that they actually was part of their lifestyle. Mm. So I, I live there um, just part of the time. I actually went to boarding school. So in western Venezuela, in, in a place called Rubio, um, in the state of Tachira, which is kind of western up in the mountains. Mm-hmm. And um, so, which was, we had an airstrip at my parents' place. Um, so we had a pilot that would, that would come and, and pick us up at school. And then we would, we kind of, even though I was only in second grade when we moved there, we would... Um, you know, travel by airplane back home. And usually that was a couple day type deal um, just because of the distance and just. So this was not a little, you know, get up in the air and land. You were flying like all day, you know, type Mm. thing. Yeah. Like hours. And so anyway, so I, I went to school there pretty much from second grade through my junior year in high school. My parents lived in different places. Mm-hmm. Um, they worked with the Yarudos for um, a number of years. And then um, we moved to Colombia. My parents did. I always mm-hmm. went to the same school, to Ocaña, which is kind of central Colombia. And then we also had a cattle ranch later on down in the Amazon on the Colombian side, which was rainforesty, mm-hmm. which is, I think, what most people think of the Amazon. Right. You know, just humongous tall trees, trees that would be the size of this studio, you know, around mm-hmm. in terms of the at the base, you know. And so um, just all I mean. We could spend. Well, I was like, <laughs> where do I even start with? There's so many great stories that, that, right. that you've yeah. already thrown out. First off, let's go back to being a kid before okay. we get to your boarding school. Yeah. I've got to imagine there was there was kind of an intrigue around you at all times. You talk about alligators. You talk uh-huh. about piranha. Uh-huh. What was it like, you know, when you weren't at school? Uh-huh. Did you go out and kick a ball around with, with other kids? Did you, were you kind of on your own? And, yeah. and how'd you learn to fish? Tell me about yeah. some of those stories yeah. as a kid growing so, up. So, so one of my piranha stories, catching piranha. So my dad had um, something, a boat, they called it a lancha. And, and, Really, the use of it was to bring 50-gallon um, diesel barrels in from um, San Fernando because, of course, there's no electricity there. Mm-hmm. So we right. had our own generator. No TV, anything like no, that, right? uh, No, yeah. no TV at all, even then. But, but, but uh, you know, so, so anyway, this lancha, so you'd, I would stand on the back of the lancha and, and you know, just use, just use a piece of meat, a small piece of meat, hook it. You know, throw it in and you'd have a piranha. I mean, so it wasn't. Could you get in the water and swim then? Yes. And piranha would leave you alone. Yeah. You know, normally, I mean, the Indians, every once in a while, they would come because we had um, nurses that Mm -hmm. were at the station as well. And they, you know, sometimes would have bites. Um, But, you know, in general, when the when it was rainy season and the river was full, there was less kind of a, you know, a fear of actually, you know, getting bitten. 
And, mm. y- you know, I mean, they were attracted by the blood and by the meat and mm. by the smell and, and all of that. And, you know, so, so the, the thing about piranha is you can't really, I mean, they're not really that great to eat. They have a lot of little bones. Mm-hmm. And so the Indians did have a method that they would use to eat them. But um, really what we would eat more often were something called bagre, which is, you know, just basically big, huge catfish. Mm. Mm. You know, I mean, and... And you'd fish for those as well? I didn't. Yeah. The The Indians would actually not really fish for them in the sense that we think of fishing. They you, they hunted them with bow and arrow. Mm. So so they could see them. I don't know how they could see them. I mean, I could never see them, yeah. but they could see them and they would shoot them with a bow and arrow in the more. So what happens in the in, you know, when it rains like this, the, the river isn't just the channel like we think of. It's kind of like in Ashland, you know, when the when it floods. You know, right. What happens? It, you know, it just spreads out everywhere and goes. And but that's the way it is in the winter in the rainforest or in or in or in the Amazon. That's what happens to the river is mm-hmm. it just gets huge. Yeah. yeah. And so they would they would shoot the 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 bagre out in more in the plains area. Yeah. So yeah. What, what took your parents there? So my parents initially, my dad, we originally were going to go to Erie and Jaya, which is kind of um, used to be called West Erian, which is kind of the Far East. But right. um, to work with um, some some people in, in New Guinea. And my dad is a linguist. So um, he, he basically uh, developed a written language or continued the process of developing a written language for this people group. Mm-hmm. So um, actually developing an alphabet. So that was part of what he did and began to actually develop, you know, vocabulary and, you know, a written form of language so that they could translate um, you know, anything into, into these people's language, especially the Bible. I mean, that's, that's really what my parents were there so for. So was it missionary work? It, it was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, so anyway, so that was kind of the, you know, our stent there in, uh, with the Aruros. When you, when you look back on that, do you, did you know as a kid that, Hey, there's no TV, there's, you know, there's other kids out here that are watching, you know, cartoons and they've got electricity and all of these things. Did you ever think of it or did, was it just was it a ball growing up in that? Kind yeah, of it was a lot of fun. I mean, so, so, you know, there's always you can always find the difficulty. Right. Yeah. It? So so there's always that regardless of where you live. But but yeah, I mean, you know, so growing up, uh, even when I was at boarding school, so. There was always tons to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, like when we when I was home on break, which was kind of like going to college, honestly, mm-hmm. only you're in second grade, mm-hmm. you know, so you're home for the summer, you know, you have a fall break, you have a Christmas break, you know, so you have those breaks. And so when I was home, you know, I'd plant a garden. So, you know, that was something that I did growing up. So I had, you know, I would in 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 you know, down on the Amazon, I would plant yucca, which is, you know, I mean, I don't know how many people know what that is, but it's a root and, and it's kind of like eating potatoes Mm -hmm. or whatever it's. And, um, basically you just take a piece of the stalk of the plant, just stick it in the ground. And, and of course it rains a lot. Right. Right. 
no problem there. It just grows. And then, you know, when the roots get big enough, you just dig it up. Yeah. Yeah. So you had to learn to probably make sure that you were entertaining yourself, right? Yes, for uh, sure. And were there kids in your in your village? Yes. Okay. Yes, they so, were. Uh-huh. What were the games you played? I mean, you know, we think to hear the Sandlot football, right? Sandlot baseball yeah. games. What? What? Or did you have games or did you, you just you go? Know, so, so I don't know so much that we, I played games with the Indians. Um, you know, so my dad and I had, my dad had a routine. Mm-hmm. So the Yarudos were semi-nomadic, but this particular group of them um, had how, homes, um, you know, their coarse thatch roof kind of uh, things on poles and they slept in hammocks and stuff, but... But there was a village, and so one of the things we used to do was we would just, you know, go around and visit people. That was kind of one of the things that my dad did on Mm -hmm. a regular basis. So I would go with them, and of course, some of them spoke Spanish, but but a lot of them did not. So there was really, for me, a limited ability to communicate, Mm -hmm. even Mm -hmm. though I spoke Spanish, um, learned Spanish when I was little. So um, limited ability really to communicate. So it was more my dad communicating and me just going around and visiting and smiling and, you know, maybe eating some food or, you know, just hanging out, you know, when we were there. Yeah. Yeah. Educational experience. I mean, again, have to get on a plane, fly across uh, to the other side of Venezuela Uh and go to school. Right. It it was an English speaking school. I'm assuming. It was. It was called Christensen Academy. It was started in the early 1900s, and uh, so we had about 100 students, um, first through 12th grade. And back in those days, they, they didn't have homeschooling. I mean, that wasn't really a thing mm-hmm. back then. I think today, probably, those kids would be in, their parents would homeschool them. But in that day, that was the way that, mm-hmm. you know, that they did did stuff. So, um yeah, so I don't remember what you're asking. Well, I, I know you, you had mentioned that it was English speaking. And, yeah. and what was that educational experience like? Was it similar to what you would have received in a school system? I, I think so. The only thing that I would say would be I came back from my senior year in high school, went to Broken Bow. Yeah. And the, I, I would say the difference was just the expectation level was really, really high. So, I mean, most of my high school classes were not uh, my college classes were not really much harder than my mm. high school classes. Just the expectation level was really, really demanding. So it wasn't just was it the academic, you know, rigor of, yes. of it? it was yes. Just- Really profoundly, yes, difficult, very, very difficult. Yeah. And you know, yeah. I think most people would not have thought that. Okay, so you're right, because you're thinking, oh, in the United States, you're going to get this rigor yeah. much more so. But yeah. but that had to be. Was it challenging for you? Were you a good student? I was not a good student in the <laughs> sense that, in, in this sense, so so school was always hard for me. Um, I really, and I don't know how much of it had to do with the transition. I kind of struggled to learn to read, and and uh, so it took me a while to to kind of get there. And then um, I don't know, you know, of course you don't have your parents, right? Mm-hmm. They're not right. there to help you, yeah. so you're kind of on your own. Um, so, and I don't know that school necessarily came naturally to me. I, I wouldn't say, 
Um, so um, pretty young, I would actually, like if I had a test, I would get up at five in the morning mm-hmm. and study. At, at the dorm, you couldn't, they wouldn't let you stay up late. You know, we had study hall, but that really, I mean, that barely touched the amount of work that you had to do. Right. Yeah, that was a regular thing, you know, but but mostly it was outside of study hall that you, and, and getting up early and studying. And so the benefit that I received from all of that and the difficulty of it just developed a lot of tenacity mm. in me. And, um, and just, you know, a willingness to work really hard. And, um, so, so that, that really formed a lot of who I am as a person, um, because school did not come easily for me. And, um, I, I had to really, really work hard. Where'd you get that discipline, Kevin? Because again, school didn't come easy for me. And I didn't necessarily work any harder at it. (laughs) (laughs) I just kind of muddled through. Yeah. School didn't come easy for you. And yet here you are, you know, you're getting up at five Mm o'clock and that work ethic, of Mm -hmm. course, is being formed Mm -hmm. now that I know has helped you today. What drove you? I mean, you've got two options. You can do the Tim route. You're just like, well, I'll muddle through and take my C. Bring you the Kevin route, which is I'm going to put in extra hours. Where did that come from? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so there's something that in leadership we talk about, right? So, so we enter right into what we try, right? We try Mm -hmm. something and then we fail, you know, so then we, we have an option then to repeat, try and fail, try and fail, try and fail. Right. And we never get anywhere. Yeah. So try, fail, learn, grow re-enter right Mm -hmm. and so early on i did a lot of failing in school right you know just just not getting good grades not not because i wasn't necessarily doing the work just because i wasn't doing enough work Mm -hmm. i wasn't working hard enough for what they were requesting what they were demanding yeah yeah and so my dad you know, he, he would sit down with us, you know, of course, after they'd get our grades, you know, and, you know, well, you need to work harder, you know. And so the, it, it was was a partly, partly perspiration that you were motivated to work harder or was it inspiration? You know, I, I think I just wanted to do well, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I wanted to do, I mean, so so I had friends that I grew up with, they could spend a fraction of the time that I spent mm. and get a better grade than I could get, yeah. you know, s- spending as, you know, an extraordinary amount of time. So, so I, I think I just wanted to do well. I wanted to excel. I wanted, but, and I got tired of getting C's and D's and, you know, and, having conversations with my parents and with the teachers and, you know, saying, Hey, you know, you need to work harder and I know it's not easy. And so, so, and, and it wasn't that they weren't willing to help, right. The mm-hmm. teachers and so on and so forth. It, it just was, you know, it wasn't easy for yeah. me. Yeah. So you get to Battle Creek and like I said, we could now easily spend 90 minutes just on your upbringing because it's yeah. such a, what an intriguing upbringing. Yeah. But now you go to Battle Creek, Nebraska Broken Bow. Oh, Broken Bow. Broken Bow. Broken Bow, your senior year. I uh-huh. mean, one Came of the most... back from, from South America. T- 
Tell me about what that was like culturally, you know, to go from this strict boarding school that obviously, sure. you know, very sure. strong academic rigor. Sure. Now you're in a public high school in Nebraska, not to mention just where yeah. you live, right? Right. I got to hear about this and, and yeah. what that was like for you. Yeah. So, so a little bit, just to kind of, to frame that up a little bit, my parents ha- are from Broken Bow and they had a ranch south of Broken Bow mm-hmm. um, growing up. And, and so my parents um, sold some of the ranch earlier on. And then we had a dairy farm that we owned actually while we were living in South America that somebody ran for us. And so when we would come back occasionally during the summers when I was in school in South America and, and we had an extra house on the place. And so we would, you know, live there. And so moving to Broken Bow wasn't totally foreign to me. I had kind of a frame of reference. My, our extended family, both on both my, my parents' side are from Broken Bow Mm -hmm. around that area. So so I had all of that, uh, you know, of course, um, culture shock, you know, and, and you, you know, just the way you think about things, right, is different, you know. So you, the things that maybe that you would take for granted and maybe an example would be most kids in Broken Bow, probably by the time they're a senior in high school, have a car. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And and so, well, nobody in my high school had a car. You know, not even a motorcycle. I mm-hmm. mean, we had bikes. <laughs> <laughs> and we walked everywhere. And we lived in the mountains, so so Rubio's in the mountains. Right. So, so we were always hiking and biking and doing all that kind of stuff. So just think of... You know, the material things, I think, are the thing that 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 maybe is a bit of the culture shock. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Because TV, you know, we didn't have a TV at boarding school. Right. You know, so just just all of that side of things would be one thing that you could that you could say, OK, well, that's really different. Yeah. Did you become enamored with those things after not having them? Did you come back to America and, and live yeah. full time? Wow, I'm going to watch a little TV. I'm yeah. Gonna... Yeah. Sure. Sure. You're intrigued by it. Right. Because yeah. it's new. Right. right. And different. And so, you, you know, we would go to my grandparents, you know, when we even when we were back here during the summer mm-hmm. and they lived on a farm north of Broken Bow. And, you know, we'd watch TV and, you know, they, my mom would say, okay, you know, you're out of here. No more TV for today, you know? And so my grandma would put me on a lawnmower or something and I'd go out and do that. Or I'd go with my grandpa or we'd go, you know, you know, check irrigation or go, you know, get on a horse and, you know, go check cows or, you know, whatever. So, but Mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. And, and so as a kid, you think, well, maybe I'm missing out, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe I'm missing out because I don't have all this stuff. And, and you don't necessarily have the perspective that we do now. Right. Of understanding the value of the education that you did receive and that maybe those other things really in the whole grand scheme of things probably aren't that important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, fascinating. And like I said, we can go on and on about this, but I want to get to uh, obviously where you're at today and, yeah. and leading up to it. But before we do, when you look at, uh, and of course, being a CEO of, of Farmers and Merchants Bank of Ashland, 
What do you think you still pull with you today uh-huh. that you learned in Venezuela and you uh-huh. learned in Costa Rica? What uh-huh. what values kind of stay with you today uh-huh. that you think were ingrained back in those yeah. days? Yeah, I, I think <clears throat> something that would be different, and I and I think anybody who lives overseas is is very patriotic and is very grateful mm-hmm. for this country and just. Um, the opportunities that affords and the lifestyle that and the possibilities that that you can have um, if you're willing to work hard and and you're willing to put in the effort and you're willing to you know so I, I would say that you know one of the things is just just a gratitude mm-hmm. for for the opportunities that that are available here. Mm. Yeah. And then I think the other thing, just what we've talked about already is just, you know, had I had I grown up here in the States, I don't know that maybe my my work ethic, especially as it relates to school, maybe would be different. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think some of that work ethic comes from just who my parents are, you know, and just the fact that they. Yeah, you know, is is so funny when you when you grow up without electricity, and and you know everything has to be made from scratch, and you know you have an outhouse, yeah, you know, and all, all of those things, you know, everything takes so much time and energy and effort, mm-hmm. you know, and so when you grow up with that, that you realize that it everything takes so much time, energy, and effort. That that's really true about everything, right? Anything worthwhile, yeah. Anything worthwhile is is uphill all the way. Mm-hmm. You know, so even like you doing this podcast, you know, it doesn't just happen. You know, this idea, this you you have this vision for what you're wanting to create, what you're wanting to do, how you're wanting to do it, the impact you're wanting to have. Well, that's uphill all the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that's an excellent point. And, you know, um, one of the things you said a moment ago when you said uh, living overseas um, made you very patriotic because you see the opportunities, right, Mm -hmm. here in the United States of America. And it's so interesting because you've gone into banking and the guest right before you talked about at age 15 getting a business loan from Farmers and Merchants uh-huh. Bank of Ashland to start uh-huh. his first business, sure. which now he has thrived in the business sure. industry. And you really can help with those opportunities. Yes. So it was a great fit. Was that a vision you had, or did you kind of stumble into the banking industry? You know, so I majored in agricultural economics with a ranch and farm management uh, specialization. Um, I had an uncle who owned some banks. Um, so I was interested in that, and a lot of people that are ag econ majors do mm-hmm. go that direction. I was originally, initially, an ag loan officer. So, but in terms of the actual vision for mm-hmm. what community banking can really do, I think I've kind of gained it over time. I don't think I, I, I understood it from the beginning. You know, really, what we want to do is help people achieve their dreams. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's about. It's about being um, a companion or um, a cheerleader or an assistant 
or I'm not sure exactly what the right word would be, but, you know, the so fun thing is, is to watch somebody that starts, say, so I've been at the bank over 30 years, right. so a long time. So, so to start with them 30 years ago, right? And so they're starting their business, they're, they're getting going, they're borrowing money and sometimes a lot of money. Mm-hmm. They, they're doing well, but they're leveraged, you right. know, because of their situation. They're making it work. They're having new ideas. They're adding, expanding, doing different things. And then, uh, and then uh, you know, they get to the place where they're no longer borrowing any money. Mm-hmm. And they have made it. They, they have reached their goals they have paid off all their debt. They're making good money, and they're able to provide for themselves and for their families and be independent. And what a just, I mean, that is so cool, right? Mm-hmm. To be able to be at one place long enough to see that happen to people, mm-hmm. you know, that they actually can, they stick with it and... And, you know, they're successful and to be a partner in that um, and to have a chance to see it is is I think that whole thing is is I think about what a lot of what community banking is about. And, you know, speaking of that and working hard and that Mm -hmm. is that's the the ultimate goal I know for Mm -hmm. you and you know, as a banker is to see them get to that point of insurance as well. Yeah. Hey, we're taking a little break in the show to make sure you know about Farmers and Merchants Bank of Ashland. Not many banks have been around for 139 years, but Farmers and Merchants Bank of Ashland has. And why? Because they offer full service business banking and you'll always speak to a live human being when you give them a call at Farmers and Merchants Bank of Ashland. They're commercial lenders. They are more than happy to share their expertise, and to help you navigate any business financing that you may need, including SBA, TIF, or NEDCO financing. So go to fmnb.com. Right below me, you're going to see that website, or give them a call at 402-944-3316. Member FDIC and Equal Housing Lender. Listen, to get to be CEO of a, a, a small community bank at, at Farmers and Merchants Bank of Ashland, you wore a lot of different hats. Sure. I mean, you started out at Los Fresno State Bank, right? First bank in 1984. Uh-huh. And you have wore about every hat that you can uh-huh. wear, right? Bookkeeping, uh-huh. uh, VP of lending, uh-huh. uh, VP of commercial lending. Uh-huh. Um, how did that experience how much richer are you for that to have those experiences to then ultimately move into a role of CEO? Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things in community banking. Yeah. It's different than maybe say larger institutions. Um, in community banking, you wear a lot of different hats. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not just able to maybe say, just focus on one thing. Um, so that process of starting, I mean, my first job, one of my first jobs in banking was filing checks. 
You know, that was back in the day when you used to get your checks back. <laughs> yes. So yes. they had to be physically filed in file mm. drawers, you know. How did you survive that? <laughs> you know, so I knew I was a management trainee for First Bank. Yeah. And so I knew that it wasn't a permanent position. Yeah. And and so I knew that, that it was just simply a process, right? And mm-hmm. we used to have something called a proof machine. Um, now they just have scanners, you know, that right. do all of this stuff. But we had to encode every single item. Like we had to, you know, with a micker down at the bottom, you know, where the check account number is. That all had to be physically encoded so then it could be read through a, mm. excuse me, through a through a, um, a processor. But, um, yeah, so all of that stuff, you know, and, and, and that, that would be, that could be a session on its own, just, right. just talking about all that stuff. But yeah, it all helps to understand, um, you know, what's going on in those areas today, or at least have compassion mm-hmm. and sympathy mm-hmm. and understanding for the employees that, that deal with that on a daily basis and to offer you know, encouragement and, and help where I can. Yeah. Leadership can kind of be uh, a scary thing an intimidating thing. But when you started in 1984, first bank, did you have a vision at some point to say, I I would love to be a CEO of a bank or, and if not, when did that vision kind of click for you that, look, I would be strong in a position of leadership. um, And this is where I ultimately want to go. Yeah. So, so no, I would say no, I, I didn't um, it, it think that, I mean, it may have been a passing thought, but it wasn't necessarily a driving force in my life, I would say at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my leadership journey, uh, you know, maybe here I could just do an aside and just say, you know, anybody can be a leader mm-hmm. if they're willing to pay the price of what it takes, right, to learn just some basic skills, you know. And the cool thing is that that as a leader, um, you know, everybody wins when the leader gets better. I love that quote, by yeah, the way. Yeah, mm-hmm. everybody wins when the leader gets better. And so so for me, that, that journey really began um, probably – in the late um, 1990s and and the early 2000s, where there there is a something called the Global Leadership Summit, mm-hmm. and that was kind of my introduction to guys like Patrick Lencioni and John Maxwell. Um, those guys, you know, were maybe ahead of their day, and and you know. I mean, guys like John Maxwell, I mean, this guy, he, he actually visits with presidents, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and they come into countries and try to change culture and develop leadership in, in around the globe. You know, people invite them in and, and, you know, Patrick Lencioni, what he's done just in terms of helping team culture and, and uh, employee culture mm-hmm. and figuring out how in the world you have healthy team culture and work culture and how you hire people and and all of that kind of stuff. So the, this is all stuff I've learned. Right. Like I didn't know this stuff when I started and I didn't realize really, even though I started my own business 
when I was in second grade. Actually, Which was actually what? in first grade. Which I was, was mowing lawns in first grade. Now, was this in South America? Yeah. Oh. I was mowing the next door neighbor's lawn, and it was with... <laughs> It was with one of those um, rotary, oh, yeah. old style. No, not, no electricity, gas, no, or anything. No, no, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just I remember all, those. I don't know how in the world I could even do it in first grade, <laughs> you know. And then I had a candy business um, when I was um, in junior high and high school. And then I also, um, you know, had a job, mm-hmm. a paid job through grade school, um, planting trees and watering trees and and, yeah. and all of that kind of stuff. So it's amazing how many strong leaders have these, you know, have put their hands into business and taken that that risk, that challenge, and even the responsibility mm-hmm. in first and second grade. Mm-hmm. It's a common thread. But I want to go back to when you started going to the Global Leadership Summit. Mm-hmm. Were you looking for something then? Was it, look, I know I need to be a better leader. I'm going to go to this. Was it curiosity? What was inspiring you or motivating yeah. you to start attending this? Initially, I think it was just somebody saying, hey, you should come. Okay. This is going to be really helpful for you. Not really realizing what I was getting into. Were you a good leader then? Uh, mm, I. <laughs> I would say that that I still needed a lot of work. I mean, well, my employees may say I still need a lot of work. <laughs> I've got I've got an employee story I'm going to share with you yeah. about you later oh, on. Okay. And I would say that is not how she feels. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I mean, I think there's just so much to learn, and I think a lot of times when you start out in business, you don't necessarily know what you don't know, mm-hmm. you know. And and so just back to the Global Leadership Summit, I mean, it has been probably the single most thing that that has changed my life, and not not necessarily because I went, but because I took the information that they offered in terms of the speakers mm-hmm. who are world-class, you know, um, so the presidents even come and they'll sometimes have them, you know, interview them. Um, you know, they, the Global Leadership Summit was just, just held here recently and Condoleezza Rice was one of the speakers. So, so they, I mean, the people that you're interacting with, we wouldn't necessarily, you and I wouldn't necessarily rub shoulders with mm-hmm. them on an everyday basis, but yeah. you're, you have a chance to be exposed to people who, who have been very successful mm-hmm. and have learned some things, right, about life and how to live it and, and how to lead. And so once you go and you see the value and you start trying to use some of this stuff, and then you do that little circle, try, fail, you know, you know, learn, mm-hmm. grow, improve, and, and you know, re-enter. And, and once, you, once you start doing that and you think, oh, this stuff really works, mm-hmm. you know, and it, and it changes the trajectory of my life and the people around me, then you kind of get hooked, right? You say, okay, there's, there's something to this, and I can be a leader. Maybe I didn't see myself in this role or in this way, but but there's more out there that that I can tap into and that anybody can if they have the desire and the drive and the willingness to learn. Mm-hmm. And that's the interesting point, because so often, you know, we hear the old saying that you know, leaders are born. Uh-huh. 
But what I hear you saying is, yes, they are. Right. Because yes. everyone, if they're willing to put in that time and that effort, yes. can become yes. a better leader. Yes, absolutely. And so that's the whole deal, right? I mean, that's that's the whole thing about you know these people that spend their lives, like John Maxwell, Patrick Lencioni, teaching on this stuff. I mean, why else would they do it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if if it wasn't, if you and I weren't able to garner anything from what they had to offer, then they wouldn't be writing books and, and speaking and stuff. It's because of what they know and what they've figured out that works and their ability to share that in a way that you and I can can actually latch yeah. onto it and use it. And then we see, oh, yeah, I mean, it's not just it's really good stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, I think what's also interesting, you, you move into the role of, of CEO mm-hmm. at Farmers and Merchants Bank of Ashland. And by the way, what year did, did that title fall? You know, I you? was trying to figure out that, I don't know, I think it's been maybe about 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So you get in that role and, and now even more people report to you, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you went from another leadership mm-hmm. role into the mm-hmm. CEO role. And you said something to me as we go back and forth mm-hmm. on email to prepare for this, that the importance of leadership doesn't just fall to those folks that report you within the walls of, of Farmers and Merchants right. Bank of Ashland, but it also falls to your clients, right? To those mm-hmm. folks coming into bank and that story mm-hmm. you told earlier about mm-hmm. the responsibility of trying to help them achieve mm-hmm. their goals. Mm-hmm. So again, a lot of business owners are watching this. They mm-hmm. only think of leadership in terms of how it affects their direct reports or right. the, within the walls of their, of their right. business. Talk about the importance of utilizing that to your clients as well, how they have to feel that. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I have a whiteboard in my office, which you've seen. Yeah. You know, and so I'll have I'll have business leaders take a picture of it. The other day, somebody was in, and they were saying, "Oh, I was reading this book. You know, it's always about the five dysfunctions of yes. a team by 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 Patrick Lencioni." And so they they see this, and they had been reading the book, and I, I don't know who told them about the book or why they were reading the book. You know, other than they were trying to get better, right? And so they come into the office and we have a discussion, you know, a 10 minute or a 15 minute discussion about it. Yeah. You know, and so, so they're also right They're They're trying to figure out how do we have a team? How do we hire people? How do we have a team that works, Mm -hmm. you know, that actually is healthy and that allows us to move the business forward? So it's also very important to them. And, you know, I've done some consulting. I haven't had much time recently mm-hmm. to do that. But in the past, I have just helping businesses, you know, try to figure out what the next step is with what the, the difficulties that they're encountering. And we all have them, right? Right. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 So that's the other thing, you know, that, that I think a lot of times people don't realize, you know, in business. So the more responsibility you have, the greater the leadership role that you have, um, you know, you you really do have to be willing to endure pain. Expand on that because yeah. that that the question and the reason I want you to expand on that is the question I was going to ask Ness: Why is leadership so difficult? We have resources, podcasts, books, Lincioni, Maxwell everything at our fingertips. And yet it still seems to be for a lot of folks, for many of us, right. That we're still searching. 
it's difficult, it's right. challenging. So talk about that last yeah, point because that yeah. may hold the answer. Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, it, it's so difficult because we are always encountering obstacles, right? Mm-hmm. So, so one of the things that I do is I have rental property. And so, you know, that there, there's always obstacles, whether, whether it's trying to take care of a tenant and treat them like you would want to be treated mm-hmm. and deal with whatever issues that they have, or you're trying to buy another property, you're trying to make it cash flow, you're trying to figure out, you know, how do I buy this and how do, what's the right price and does it make sense? You know, is it gonna is it gonna pay for itself and all of that kind of stuff. So, or you know, you at work, you you have employees, and you know, I don't know, um, I'm not perfect, so I don't think they are either. Mm-hmm. And so there are relational challenges, there are interactional challenges that they have that you have. You know, everybody brings what they got with them. Right. You know. And, and so, you know, there's, there's that learning. And so, you know, trying to help people, trying to, whether they're employees or, or business people, trying to help them say, okay, here's some things that I need to work on. How can I work on this? Mm-hmm. How can I get better? You know, and so it's, you know, leadership is challenging on so many different levels. I think the thing that's different for me is, when it comes to this kind of stuff, even though it's so difficult, um, it, I'm not discouraged by it. Yeah. I, I guess mostly. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, uh-huh. sure. That doesn't mean that there aren't hard days and there aren't discouraging things, right? Right. Because we all face that, right, in our lives. and, and um, But it doesn't make me want to quit. You know, what mm-hmm. it does is it makes me want to try to figure out, okay, what's the solution? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. And, you know, and, and, and did I, and did I step on you there? No, did no, you you're good. No, no, that's fine. Because I, um, what got me thinking too a little bit is with Farmers and Merchants Bank of Ashland, I mean, in right. a smaller community, not, yes. not, I don't want to call it a small bank because right. certainly you, you go way beyond Ashland, but on the other hand, there is that element of truly being in a smaller community, right? Oh, you know people's names and absolutely. leadership playing such an important role. And I'm this is not a knock on bigger banks, but sometimes a bank can get so big. Sure. You may not know Mabel coming sure. through that front door, yeah, right? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so again, do you see that spilling down from your people, the folks that you're leading and mm-hmm. and, and role modeling for them mm-hmm. leadership? How important is that, especially in that smaller type community oh, setting? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, most every single customer, you know, has some kind of relationship some way with yeah. somebody in the bank. Um, and so the people that we like to hire enjoy that, right? They enjoy that interaction. They enjoy um, being able to help and um, being offered that customer service. And a lot of times, you know, it's pretty relational. I mean, people know their lives and their customers' mm-hmm. lives and what's going on with them. And it's caring about that, having compassion, you know, for those things and trying to figure out. And, and it may not necessarily mean always approving the loan, right? Yeah. It, it may be. 
and it may not you may not always be able to do what they're asking you to do but it's maybe helping them to figure out how you can mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know here are the things that we can do you know so let's work on this you mm-hmm. know and if you work on these things then come back in 6 months and let's talk about it again you know so community banking is that way right. it, it's it's more hands on it's more personal it's more relationship based especially i think you know on the teller or the you know the new accounts you know the the you know entry entry point that people have to the bank those people are people they see every day and on the lending side a lot of times especially in commercial lending you know these are businesses so you see these people on a regular basis you're talking to them they're asking questions and yeah. you know how can i do this and what can you do to help me and yeah. with this and yeah i think that's what makes you guys so special you know is that you do have that relationship yeah. um and and boy that can be so helpful in so many ways yeah. um and I want to dig in a little bit about how you got there okay. um, when it comes to your leadership, because okay. we've talked already about Lynn Shioni being mm-hmm. such a huge mm-hmm. influence on mm-hmm. you. And we won't go through the whole five dysfunctions. Right. But one thing that I thought was so interesting, and, and obviously I've been through the training as well, but you know, you talk about fear conflict, right? Yeah. That's, that's one of the yeah. rungs, if you will, of yeah. the five dysfunctions. It's a big deal. Right. Artificial harmony. Yeah. And the cure for that courage to be open. I yes. think this seems to be at the heart of a lot of problems, right? Yeah. Is that you give that artificial harmony yeah. and that can lead to bigger problems. And yes. talk about that because there's business owners out there all the time. And I work with some of them who say, I just hate conflict. Yeah. And they view it as conflict yeah. versus that willingness to be open. So talk about yeah. how they can get their arms around that yeah. as a business owner. Yeah. So, so, you know, we have a management team meeting every Tuesday morning at the bank and so we're we're making decisions about right now we're in kind of software kind of renegotiation on stuff yeah and um so we you know we're trying to figure out certain things certain software and so you know had a, our consultant in that's helping in with us with this and so um i go around and i said okay so i want each of you to tell me you know if you had to vote today, what would you, who would you vote for? Which which software company would you vote for? And um, so so we just went around and and so the reason I, I tell the story is because afterwards the consultant said to me he said I rarely see that ever happen in in my business experience where people actually can voice their opinion and tell you why they think what they, you know, think. And mostly people don't always have to have their way. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't necessarily always have to have their way, but it is really important that they have their say. And and what I mean by that is is just that that you hear them, Mm -hmm. that you hear their input, that you value their input, that you, you know, that you try to figure out, okay, be curious, like, okay, so why do you think that, you know? And so, so there's a, I like to put it like on a line, like draw, draw a line and say on one side, there, there is like, you know, healthy discussion, um, discourse, 
um, interaction. And on the other side, there's personal attacks. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if we talk about conflict on a linear line, and so over here is healthy, over here is personal attacks, right? So, well, the healthy piece is probably someplace in the middle, you know, and we have to be careful, you know, to be civil. Does that mean that I have always been civil? No. So I have, and my employees will testify to this, I have had to apologize, you know, and say, I'm sorry, you know, I was wrong. I shouldn't have said what I said. I should, shouldn't have, you know, did what I did. You know, will you forgive me? You know, let's get this back together. Mm-hmm. So, so in that, so, so that's the problem with conflict, right? So that's as you, the five dysfunctions of a team, right? You, you know, the fear of conflict. People don't want to go there, right? People don't want to have conflict because this discourse, because a lot of times it turns out not being civil, you know? And I mean, I, I think there is a lot for us as a country, not just in business. I was just going to say, yeah, that, that, could, that could be taken to a whole new level, can it? It's funny how in business we do work so hard for civility, and then in other things outside mm-hmm. of business, we don't always pay attention to that. Yeah. And that's where those yes. leadership lessons can, yeah. can stay with people. Yeah. And so it's very, very important to, to be able to have that discussion because that's where the best ideas mm-hmm. come out, right? Mm-hmm. Because if nobody can speak their mind, well, then you're, you're not really taking advantage of what that person may have to offer. Right. Their insight. Mm-hmm. Their acumen, their ability, their, their you, you're missing out on all of that. And so if you're not willing to go there, right? Yeah. If you're not willing to go there, then you have artificial harmony, you know, and, and you know, then, then a lot of times what happens from that, if you have artificial harmony in a business, is then people sabotage it from the other end. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so, so I, the CEO said, we're going to do this, you know, without getting buy-in from everybody. And then all of a sudden, nobody's really willing to work on it. Right. Or yeah. half-heartedly because they don't like it. Yeah. And they I, haven't had a chance to, to say their piece. Yeah. And you're right. Artificial harmony stifles innovation. Mm-hmm. You know, it, there's so many other negatives that can come with this. One other thing I want to ask you about here. You talked about key lessons in mm-hmm. your life, um, and you talk about having a posture of humility. Uh-huh. And there's three things that really go with that: uh-huh. the don't pretend, don't presume, don't push pull. Uh-huh. I'd like you to expand on that yeah. a little bit because I, Kevin, I'm going to give you a, a quote after this. You are a servant leader. There's no doubt about it, and I believe in the in the value of that. So I want to hear a little bit about that humility. Don't pretend, don't presume, and don't push pull. What that means? Yeah. Yeah, so humility, I mean, I think is one of the most indispensable character qualities of a leader. And and the reason is is because if you think you know everything and don't need anybody else's input, then people people don't, don't generally like that or aren't attracted to that. Mm-hmm. And, and you're not even really going to be successful. Let you me know? just play devil's advocate okay. for a second. Okay. Strong, a, a leader might say, humility is weak. Servant mm-hmm. leadership, 
that soft, mm -hmm. soft, weak leadership. Mm -hmm. What would you say to that? Yeah, I think, you know, so what works, right? Mm -hmm. What works? Okay, so you can be a leader that, um, you know, says, okay, this is the way it is. It's the, it's the, uh, my way or the highway, maybe, mm -hmm. yeah. maybe it's kind of maybe what you're saying, my way or the highway. So let me just ask you, do you want to work for them? Right. No, I would not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe some and, people. And, yeah. And most people, don't you think that that is most people want their opinions, valued, their thoughts, their ideas. They well, what am I here to? for? What am I here for? Mm -hmm. If it's my way or the highway as the leader, what am I here for? Why do you need me? Mm -hmm. If I can't think, if I can't use my acumen, my ability, my experience, everything that I bring, why do you hire me? Mm -hmm. You know, tell me what don't push pull means. Yeah. So, so I think, I think a lot of times as leaders, it's, it's the same thing that we were just talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think a lot of times we can, and I'm guilty of it, um, push things on people. Mm -hmm. Okay, here you go. Here's what I want you to do. And, and there's a place for that, right? I mean, it's, I'm not saying that you can't ever ask somebody to do something. That, that's, not, that's not what I mean. What I mean is you try to pull them along instead of push them into doing something. Mm -hmm. so, so that this whole dynamic, this whole way of leading is about pulling people getting buy-in, clarifying, getting direction, you know, getting commitment, getting accountability. You're pulling people along with you. You know, they, they it, and this isn't my own thing. You've heard this before. You know, you can go fast, but you're going alone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and so, so as you're leading people, you know, you can go fast. You can go really fast. But you're probably not pulling anybody else along with you. Yeah. You know, they're, 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 they're probably dragging their heels, you know. And so you have to really figure out how can I pull Tom, Dick, or Harry, you right. know, or Lucy, or, you know, how can, I, how can I grab a hold of them and what they're, where they're at mm -hmm. in their own journey and what their responsibilities are. How do I grab a hold of them and pull them along with me to this to this greater vision that they buy into? Mm -hmm. It's not just my vision. It's not just what I want to accomplish. It's what they want to accomplish as well because they've been included in the process. Yeah. So when you develop vision, is it something that can be done by the leader? And then you say to everyone else, here's our vision. You've got to buy in. Or... When, when people are really looking to develop their vision and, and who they are and why they do what they do, does it need to be done by the collective? You know, I think it does, but, but I'm learning. Yeah, right. I'm learning, and, and so, so that's what I, I want to have that posture. always want to have that posture as a leader. I want to be a learner. Mm -hmm. um, not always execute very well, but I, I do really want to be a lead. Uh, I really do want to be a learner. So, so what, like at the bank, we do this, we, we were just doing this yeah. the last few weeks. So we're creating a vision, you know, and so, um, you know, part of that is saying, okay, so here are the things that we're having to work with. Mm -hmm. Here's the collective things. So we made a list, made a list of everything. Right. And all the departments and what they're working on and 
what what's happening you know that's three or four or five ten deep you know there's 50 priorities yeah right 50 priorities okay so we divide them all up you know and so then we say okay so what is our primary vision here at the bank what is what is first what is second what is third what what are we really trying to do and so we come up with that. We say, and that this is this is just discussion, right? In this management team, right? This is just discussion, and we're working through all of this together. You know, and I I came up with a list of stuff before I started, but that's just to give us a place to start, right? right? It's not. I want to hear what you guys think. I want to hear what you. Okay, so then we come up with we come up with a direction. Well, a vision of what we, okay, well, then that informs the other 50 things that are on the list mm-hmm. in each department, right? Mm-hmm. So, so if, we're, if we're actually saying, hey, this is the direction we're going, okay, now all of a sudden what maybe was number 10 on the list over here in this department all of a sudden becomes number one. Mm. Because if we're going to get this vision accomplished – all of a sudden that changes direction. Yeah. 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 I love it. And it, and it takes a very intentional approach, uh-huh. uh, but there's no doubt about it. Uh, I think this has become second nature to you. And, and I want to talk to you a little bit. We're going to, we're going to finish on this. So I went around the bank, talked to a few people. And what I would describe is you have a very strong servant leadership quality to mm. you. And, and one uh, employee in particular said that you, imp- and I'm going to paraphrase her. Okay. What she said is you empower, oh. you are an incredible listener. Mm. You really, she feels listened to, to your point earlier in the podcast. Um, you see people as people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, as human beings. Um, and you treat everyone with respect. Mm. And I think that's the ultimate compliment that mm. a leader can get is mm. the fact that you know, here is one employee who really is all those things you're talking about, all those things you're trying to implement from mm-hmm. a leadership. It's being it's being felt and seen mm-hmm. on a very real and practical mm-hmm. level by by your employees. Mm-hmm. Well, so I want to congratulate kind. you. Very yeah. kind. Of and Melanie, her. of course, uh, was was <laughs> wonderful to talk to. And I hope she's okay with me sharing. It. She said it, she was. I said oh, I got okay. I got to share this. She's but an it, incredible. She's an incredible employee. Yeah, and you've got a lot of them. Um, but I think that really does pay you a tremendous compliment because I think it's become second nature. So at some point for every leader, they can, with work and with time and with effort, it just becomes easier, doesn't it? It does. It does because you have a frame of reference, you know, yeah. that you're working from. And so it doesn't mean that you're perfect. It mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you always get it right. It doesn't mean that you don't face challenges and of all kinds, you know, uh, I think just owning your own dysfunction, yeah. owning your own, um, you know, uh, disabilities or, or, or shortcomings maybe is yeah. a better word. Um, seeing those, allowing people to speak those into your lives, you know, being vulnerable enough to say, Hey, you know, I, I understand. I'm not perfect. I, I understand that I may not get this right. Yeah. And so if I don't tell me, you know, and sometimes that's hard, mm-hmm. especially if you're the CEO, 
you know, it's hard for them to, to actually do that. Um, but it's, it's something that I say to my employees, you know, if, if, you know, if I'm not doing this right, if I'm not walking my talk, so to speak, you know, let me know. Yeah. 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 Well, you definitely do that. There's no doubt about it. And uh, this, we needed a lot more than an hour, Kevin. <laughs> I mean, first off, we could have spent an hour just on your, your yeah. growing up in yeah. South America, which is fascinating in and of itself. But there's so much from that leadership in, too, that you are so well-versed in um, that uh, we'll have to do this again. That'd be awesome. Yeah. I would love it. Absolutely. Well, yeah. thank you so yeah. much for you coming bet. on. Thank All right. you. You bet. Yeah, it was fun. A Huda Media Production.
Ahura Media Production.